the question behind every single moment in Luke's gospel is this, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? You're getting used to me saying that. I think it's always important to remember that, but the answer is now starting to emerge. Jesus is the Messiah of God, the anointed king who will establish God's everlasting kingdom. But he's not the Messiah of expectations. He will suffer, he'll be rejected, he will die, and he'll be raised to life. This is how the kingdom of God will be established on earth as it is in heaven. But the reason I like to remind us that this question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth, is always behind every page of Luke's gospel, is because the question starts to evolve as the gospel goes on. We're now at this turning point in Luke, and Luke writes, he tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so up until this point, most of the ministry of Jesus in Luke's gospel has been in and around the region of Galilee. But now Jesus is resolutely set out toward Jerusalem. Uh, the Greek is literally, he set his face toward Jerusalem. You might remember in this same chapter, Jesus had a discussion with Moses and Elijah, which was pretty cool, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were talking about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And once again, the Greek word for departure is, is exodus. The exodus. This is when God miraculously and graciously delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into new life in the promised land. And now, Jesus, the Messiah of God, he's leading a new exodus. He's delivering us out of everything that enslaves and keeps us from sharing in the life and love of God. But unlike Moses, who led that new, that old exodus, Jesus is not just a prophet. He is God in the flesh, God with us, God among us. And so every step that Jesus takes from here on out in Luke's gospel is in the direction of his departure. Luke wants us to take note of that. And so the question then begins to shift. It's, it's more like, what does it look like to follow Jesus, the Messiah, into a new exodus? What does it look like to follow Jesus into a new exodus? So with that question in mind, let's just walk through our passage together. We're in Luke chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 51. At the, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get everything ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Peter, James, and John, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Moses and Elijah appear. It's miraculous. And do you remember what Peter said? Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's camp. And Luke felt it necessary to add he did not know what he was saying. In our passage, James and John who in the Gospel of Mark have the best nickname, Sons of Thunder. The Sons of Thunder say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And I imagine Luke is wondering if it would be redundant to add, they did not know what they were saying. So what's going on here? 
Well, historically, there was actually an intense conflict between Jews and Samaritans. It involved different religious views, and it also involved ethnic prejudice. Uh, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that Samaritans would actually make it very difficult for Jewish pilgrims to pass through Samaria into Jerusalem, even murdering pilgrims on occasion. And so it was much quicker to go through Samaria, but most Jewish pilgrims would go around to avoid the conflict, even though it would take many more days. It says a lot, don't you think, that Jesus doesn't take the detour. He doesn't go around, he goes straight through. And the sons of thunder, they're not surprised that the Samaritans then reject Jesus outright. And their experience now only reaffirms this prejudice that they have towards Samaritans. Lord, do you want us to call down fire? And Luke writes, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. And what we should see here is that the disciples, they still don't get it. And Jesus, he's already told them twice, very recently, that the Son of Man must what? Must suffer many things and be rejected and then be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, the disciples, they still don't have eyes to see that this rejection is not just rejection, it's also fulfillment. Jesus must be rejected on his way to Jerusalem. He didn't come with some false expectation of total acceptance, and he didn't come to rain down fire on people who reject him. Yes, he will come in judgment at the end of time when he returns, but in his first appearing, Jesus Christ came to heal and bring salvation through his rejection. It's upside down, but it's the way of Jesus. And what we need to see in this passage is Jesus most certainly did not come to affirm prejudice and hostility between ethnic groups. There is no place for racism in any shape or form in the kingdom of God. And so it turns out the disciples, they still have a lot to learn about what it means to follow Jesus the Messiah into his new exodus. And then our passage continues on in verse 57. Uh, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This gives me the impression that Jesus wouldn't be very good at growing a church. <laughs> That's a somewhat odd series of exchanges, don't you think? People are already walking on the road with him. That's what we're told. They're walking with Jesus toward Jerusalem, and Jesus seems to be trying to dissuade them with what appears to be rather unreasonably high demands. It seems like Jesus is saying, you think you can follow me? Think again. It seems like Jesus is asking for more than we can give. Now, it might not be obvious, but the old Hebraic prophet Elijah can actually help us see what's going on here. I know he's not mentioned by name, but his life underwrites this passage we're reading. Uh, when James and John say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? They're drawing from the life of Elijah. 
After all, James and John, they just saw Elijah with their own eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so they, they just assume, I guess for good reason, hey, maybe we can act like Elijah now. And it was Elijah who called down fire from heaven on more than one occasion, and it was always in conflict with his enemies. But as we've seen, Jesus rebukes James and John for this thought. No, you're not going to act like Elijah in this way. And now a potential follower is challenged by Jesus, but an Elijah, Elijah's still in the subtext. This one follower says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And this has echoes of when Elijah called his protege and disciple Elisha to follow him. Elisha said to him, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll come with you. And Elijah reasonably said, okay. And he gave him permission, and he went back and said goodbye. So Elijah, he calls down fire against his enemies, but Jesus won't permit this for his disciples. Elijah allowed his disciple to say goodbye to his family, but Jesus won't permit this for his disciples. In fact, he says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We can understand the not calling down fire from heaven part. I think we're all grateful that's not really a part of our ministry. But not saying bye to your family? First off, it helps to see what Elisha actually did. This is what we read in Kings. Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So Elisha essentially went home and set his old life on fire. But he did it in a way that enriched and blessed the lives of those he was leaving. But now there's a different moment than Elijah here. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to see. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now is the time. You can't wait. And I know, like, the way Jesus replies to each of these people, like, it's probably piqued your interest. And if you want to kind of go down those rabbit trails, and the more you study it, 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 it just kind of provokes an even deeper intensity. And so what I want to do is focus on the point rather than the details. Jesus essentially says, you think you can follow me wherever I go? I don't even have a home for my head. I'm heading to my departure. I'm going to face suffering and rejection and, and death. And if you want to follow me, following me has to be your greatest commitment. Even above your family, no burying them, no turning back to say goodbye. Following me is now and not later. It's looking forward and not backward. That's what we're hearing in this passage. And if you're feeling a bit defensive or like a little, you know, taking a step back, just acknowledge that feeling right now. So I think that's how everybody in that moment was feeling. Even the disciples who've been following Jesus up until this point, they're like, what is he asking of us? Jesus is saying, set your old life on fire by following me does feel like Jesus is asking for more than we can give, doesn't it? But let's not miss the point. This passage is not about perfect obedience. We might be reading it through that lens. This is not about perfect obedience. That's not what following Jesus requires, although he will change how we live. Jesus is talking about the direction of our lives, not the perfection of our lives. The direction, not the perfection. 
And the direction of our lives, if we're going to move in the direction of Jesus, it takes total commitment. The question then is, will you give your total commitment and imperfect obedience to Jesus? Will you give your total commitment and imperfect obedience to Jesus? To preach the kingdom of God and to become fit for service in the kingdom of God, that's what he's asking for in this passage. Will you give him your full loyalty, even if it means putting to death the dream of comfort and self-fulfillment, even if it means leaving behind your home and family in a sacrificial way, even if it means setting your old life on fire, not like an arsonist, but more like a gracious and a deliberate follower who will try your best to enrich the lives of others that you are leaving. Now, I want to say it's important to, to keep all of Scripture in mind. If you just had this passage, you might think Jesus is anti-home, which is fine for us in Vancouver because we can't afford homes, and <laughs> anti-family. But if you read all of the New Testament, no, like you can have a home, you can have a family. This is about a particular moment and a very literal moment where Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem and he's talking to people who want to follow him on that particular path. And yet it still has implications for us. He's asking for total commitment then and now, a commitment to him above all other commitments. And sometimes it may cost us our home and sometimes our commitment to Christ may cost us being with our families, but not always. But this is about total commitment. And so what does that look like practically? What does it look like to be totally committed to Christ? Well, there's the story of Adoniram uh, Judson and Anne Hasseltine. And Adoniram had fallen in love with Anne, and they were engaged to be married. Uh, and Adoniram uh, wrote a letter that we still have to his potential father-in-law, and they intended to get married and so much more. They would actually sail from America to Burma, Myanmar as uh, the first American-sent missionaries in 1813. And here's what Adoniram wrote. You might want to take notes if you're planning on proposing. <laughs> I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Do you know what's more shocking John Hasseltine read this letter and wrote, yes, take my daughter and go. <laughs> now, sadly, Adoniram and two of their children actually died in Myanmar. But by the time they died, they saw thousands of people baptized in Myanmar. 63 congregations formed. And 150 years later, Adoniram's translation of the Bible is still being used in Myanmar. Now, this is one picture of total commitment, setting your life on fire, looking forward to the kingdom of God. But if I'm honest, I don't know. Is that what Jesus is asking of us? If I'm honest, if I received a letter from a young man in the future asking to take Ansley or Maggie into this fate, would I say yes as a father? I think I'd suggest Burnaby. Now, of course, I did something similar to my own father-in-law. Uh, 
Julia, my Floridian belle, did move across North America uh, to church plant with me in Vancouver, but it's not the same as moving to Myanmar in the 19th century or even today. Uh, but that didn't stop my father-in-law from writing me a letter with these words when Ansley was born. Congratulations. And just think, one day she might fall in love with a boy from Florida and move away to the States. <laughs> Zing. So back to the point. And actually, my father-in-law is here today. And I didn't actually plan this because he was here. So you're welcome, Kim. Some pictures of total commitment, some pictures of total commitment really challenge us, might even disturb us. I mean, some people are laughing at this letter, but it was no joke, right? Is this what it takes to follow Jesus? Does it require that we leave our home and our family behind, our careers and our stability are behind, our, our hopes and our dreams behind, and we follow Jesus into risk and rejection and possible death? Sometimes. Sometimes it does. Jesus doesn't shy away from this. He doesn't undersell the cost of following him. Total commitment will cost us something. And as I've studied our, this passage, and I, I kind of scoured books that I've read over the years to find examples of total commitment, I realized I have to con confess something to all of you. I have a strong dislike of hype in the church. I have this knee-jerk reaction to expressions of Christianity that deliberately stir up the intensity. And so I get back on my heels when I feel like people are getting hyped up about something related to Jesus, but it's more like the culture. It's, it's more like an expression of following Jesus or a particular temperament of following Jesus, but not actually being hyped up about Jesus himself. Now, some of you might say, well, Alistair, you're guilty of hyping us up once in a while, and, and maybe so, but I have this kind of knee-jerk reaction to it. And because of this, I've had a bit of a reactionary approach within our church. I want to call us to Jesus, but I've tried to keep the hype dialed down as much as possible. But as a result, studying this passage, I can't help but wonder, have I toned down what Jesus asks of me? Total commitment. On some level, don't all of us Want a Christianity that's more subdued? A Christianity that's less demanding? Wouldn't all of us prefer the option of like really committed? Not totally committed? Partially committed, but not fully committed? That's not the invitation of Jesus. Total commitment then is saying all I know of me to all I know of Jesus. Each day, again and again. It's a commitment to bring all of yourself to him today and the next day and the day after. It's a commitment to recognize that when you fall short of his ways, and you will, when you make mistakes and sin, and you will, when you continue to struggle with the impulse to live for yourself, you will. It's a commitment to keep turning back to him and moving in his direction again and again. It's a commitment to bring your thoughts and your ideas and opinions uh, and ways of being and acting into alignment with his. And doing this again and again. Total commitment looks like finding the courage to say yes to Jesus, even when you don't know what the question will be or where he's asking you to go. And finding that courage again and again. Will you give your total commitment and imperfect obedience to Jesus? Will you do it in the form of proclaiming his kingdom and making yourself 
fit for service in his kingdom. That's the ask. And it's this kind of all or nothing ask. And of course, not all of us are called to be missionaries who leave our home for another country. Not all of us are called to work for a church either. And so what does it look like to have total commitment for those of us who want to follow Jesus earnestly here and now in Vancouver, in the place that we are, in our work, in our homes, as in our lives day after day? I was recently introduced to a phrase uh, that helps envision total commitment to following Jesus. And here it is. Informal missionary. Informal missionaries. Now, before we can unpack that, let me just redefine a missionary because we need a broader definition than someone who just moves from one country to another for the sake of Jesus. God is love. And because of this, God is a missionary God. The love of God is always on the move between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God in his love sends. God the Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. And as we, the church, are caught up into the love that is God, we're sent. We join God's love on the move. That's what it means to be a missionary. You join God's love on the move. And so what is an informal missionary? Michael Green wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. And he's trying to get at why did early Christianity grow so rapidly, becoming this dominant religion in the world. And he says it was really accomplished not by the prophets and the formal teachers, but by informal missionaries. This is where the term comes from. And here's what Michael Green writes. The work of informal missionaries was an unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere spreading the good news, which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have not been formal preaching, but the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel, and they did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who had not paid to say that sort of thing. Having found treasure, they meant to share it with others to the limit of their ability. Isn't that more inviting? What would it look like for you to start chattering about Jesus, gossiping the gospel? I love that phrase. Having found the great treasure of the gospel, what if you could whistle in joy everywhere you go, sharing it with others to the limit of your ability? And what if it could truly become an unselfconscious effort? In our passage, Jesus asks for the total commitment of ordinary, everyday people people who have concerns about their homes and responsibilities and families, and he wants them to become informal missionaries who follow him. And so what if you made it your life's work, your aim, to figure out how? How are you called to preach and serve the kingdom in your life, where you are, with your gifts and opportunities right now? as a friend, as a child, as a spouse, as a parent, as a coworker, as a student, in all of your roles, in all of the places your life touches. Because this is what it means to make ourselves fit for service in the kingdom. What would it look like to give your total commitment to Jesus, to join God's love on the move with your lips and with your life? And I realize we're going to be more inclined to serve before we preach. 
And I think there's wisdom to this, especially in a culture like Vancouver, visibly demonstrating the patience and kindness and mercy and justice of the kingdom is going to go a long way because Christians are often perceived as hypocrites, unconcerned with the cares of the world. And so we should demonstrate our love through our works. But I do want to ask, like, when is the last time you talked to someone about Jesus and his kingdom? I mean, have you ever chatted with someone that doesn't know anything about Jesus, about who he is and what following him means to them? Because in our passage, an ordinary, everyday person, Jesus says, go proclaim the kingdom. This wasn't someone with training. This wasn't someone who had all the answers. This was just an ordinary person trying to follow Jesus. And Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, it involves talking about me. And I think one of the reasons we don't tell other people about Jesus and the kingdom of God, well, there's, there's a lot of reasons. There's bad experiences of that, which that's probably a whole sermon at some point. But there's also our fear of rejection. And, and rejection is a theme through this passage, isn't it? It's a legitimate fear. What if it doesn't go well? What if I don't know what to say? Or what if I talk about Jesus and I, I hit someone's trauma and hurt them? What if I accidentally burn a bridge or damage a friendship? What if I lose respect and credibility? And what if I'm misunderstood and ostracized as a bull-headed fundamentalist evangelical? But here's the thing. Jesus does not promise us a life free of rejection if we preach his kingdom. Jesus himself was rejected. When the kingdom is proclaimed, rejection will happen. It's inevitable. We're not invited to play it safe. We're invited to make ourselves fit for service in the kingdom, which can involve suffering and rejection at times. And so I don't want to say, like, if you share the gospel, even in the most winsome way, that you might not face rejection. You might. It's possible. But I do want to say there is a big difference between being rejected for how you communicate. Say someone rejects you because you're being belligerent or forceful or disrespectful or you're failing to end the conversation when they've asked or being rejected because of the message itself. There's a big difference for being rejected in how you communicate versus the content of the message. And so is it fear of rejection? Is that fear worth keeping our mouths shut about an everlasting kingdom and a beautiful Savior? And if we have been mute about the kingdom, look, I don't want us to stay in guilt or shame about that. That's not my heart or goal. I don't think that's Christ's heart or goal. I also don't want us to be indifferent about it. What I want to invite is, could you become curious with Jesus about it? I know it's not easy to talk to people about Jesus. I know it's not in fashion. It never really is. But what would it look like for you to start a conversation with your Lord about how you honor him with your lips in a way that is appropriate for your life and your place and the opportunities around you? I can't tell you what that looks like because there's too many people here. You're all going to have a different commitment of what that looks like for your life in this time and this place. But what if? What if you could start talking about Jesus, gossiping the gospel in a way that's respectful and gentle and winsome and joyful? What would it look like for you to become someone who joins God's love on the move towards others as you Make a total commitment to Christ to proclaim his gospel and make yourself fit for service in his kingdom.
when we look at this passage, stepping back, it really does feel like Jesus is asking for more than we can give. And the truth is, Jesus doesn't understate his ask. There's no bait and switch. He wants all. But then we shouldn't conclude that it's impossible for us to follow him or that he's asking too much. Because I think what we really should hear him saying is, follow me if you dare. Follow me if you dare. The path isn't easy. It's narrow. It takes all you've got. There's no half-hearted commitment. There's no turning back. But the way of my departure, it is good. And when we see who we're following, all our excuses fall away. Go back to the beginning of the passage. As the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. Jesus was totally committed to his departure, to pioneering this new exodus, to deliver us and this entire world from everything that enslaves us, from experiencing the love and life of God. Why? Because God's love is on the move toward us in Christ. God's love is set toward us. And because his love was set toward us, Jesus had no place to lay his head. Because his love was set toward us, Jesus laid down his life and didn't experience all the benefits of an earthly family. And he did this because Jesus was totally committed to opening the kingdom of God to us through his death and resurrection. Jesus counted the cost and he paid the cost because he loves us and wants to be with us. When you see who you're following, all excuses fall away. Because Jesus is totally committed to us. Not our perfection, not our obedience, to us. And you might spend your whole life struggling to preach the gospel in a way that feels right for you, and you might always struggle to make yourself fit for his kingdom, and that's okay, because Jesus isn't looking for your perfect obedience. He's looking for your heart. He wants you to follow him because he loves you, and he laid down his life for you. And should you follow him, if you dare, you'll get caught up in the goodness of God and bless others on the way. Let's pray.